We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guests for the episode are Dr. Adam Bloom, Dr. Peter Goldberg, Dr. Michael Levin, and they're here to talk about their new book, Here I'm Alive, The Spirit of Music in Psychoanalysis, published 2023, Columbia University Press. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, and uh, let's meet the band. Adam, will you uh, kick us off? Sure. Thanks, Christopher. Uh, thank you for having us. Um, I guess I would introduce myself as a sort of forever student of psychoanalysis. Uh, haven't done formal training, but I do work in that mode as a therapist and write in that genre uh, in this book with these guys and elsewhere. And similarly, I'm not a musician by training, but I have studied music theory and performance, and I worked for many years on what was known as the Music Genome Project in the early days of streaming, and uh, worked in record stores before that. So I have a background in music. Uh, More than anything, I'm just really passionate about music, and these days that mostly takes the form of uh, playlists I make for my own listening and uh, for those with whom I share music, um, maybe let these guys introduce themselves. And... Yeah, Peter. Hi, I'm Peter Goldberg. I'm an analyst here in Berkeley for many decades. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not a formally trained musician, although I had a previous life as a semi-professional rock, rock and roll musician uh, many decades ago. Uh, and got into this through my interest in uh, non-representational experience, sensory experience in analysis, sensory perception in the analytic in, uh, encounter, and dissociation as a, a topic of great interest to me over many years. So somehow this led into the question of music, uh, and that's... Um, uh, once I developed a, a few ideas about that, I met uh, Adam and Mike, and uh, we formed this little group exploring this topic together. Great. Michael. Uh, hi. Thanks for having us, Christopher. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, I'm an analyst also here in San, well, in San Francisco and a very amateur long-term guitarist, long-time guitarist. Um, And I came into this project uh, first through my relationship, friendship with Peter, and then after that with Adam, uh, and my interest in phenomenology, uh, which I sort of pursued in parallel with my analytic training, um, which naturally uh, brought me uh, into a lot of interest in the work that Peter was doing that he referenced uh, on perception and non-representational states. Uh, 
uh, and we did a couple of uh, programs together at scientific meetings at our institute, the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis, uh, and the book emerged very, or the book project emerged very organically on that. So yeah, tell me how it did, uh, I guess the three of you are just chatting about music and psychoanalysis and said, we should write a book. Is that is that pretty much how it came about? Well, I mean, I gave a paper and uh, Adam discussed it and Mike was the moderator. And afterwards they approved, you know, we got together to chat. And, you know, I think they sort of sneaked up on me. I think they sort of got the idea, why don't we try and write something together? And before we knew it, we were meeting around a kitchen table once a month and uh, producing text and then editing text together uh, over a two-year period. So we really wrote this together. I mean, people would produce some material and then we would... um, read it, edit it, and then meet and read the edits aloud. And uh, Adam would type away on the laptop, and we produce the book that way. Great. Um, all right, so let's get into to the book. Um, and I'm going to read uh, 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 different passages um, and then we'll ask questions from them. Uh, this one, uh, before we can become fully functioning, emotional, rational, linguistic, cultural, social, or political animals, human beings first become musical animals. This is the key argument of the book. What, what does that mean? So I should I... I... Uh, ahead, anybody, anybody, jump in. We don't have video Michael, here, so. Uh... Um, let's see. Well, I think this really goes to the question of um, perception and shared understanding, um, which is something that we felt had largely been uh, taken for granted, or at least under thought, under theorized in psychoanalysis. Uh, as if human beings sort of have a naturally emerging kind of automatic uh, sense of perception of the world and a way of understanding others, um, get, getting in tune with others that could be thought about in deeper and new ways. And uh, when we zero down on perception coming out of primarily by, uh, Peter's work and combining it with some ideas from phenomenology, especially existential phenomenology, we settled on the, the idea of music being a sort of like a primordial operating system that all human beings are brought into that enables us to both coordinate our psychosoma, our minds and bodies, our perception, shared perception of the world and our communication uh, with others. And that this is a necessary first step in becoming human, um, not sufficient, but necessary. Uh, and with this idea in mind, we tried to, the rest of the book is trying to rethink psychoanalysis with this premise. So what, what is it that was uh, taken for granted or, or not theorized, thought about? Peter, you want to take that? Well, this is, that's a good question because, I mean, it would be, you know, it, be claiming a lot to say that something had remained completely untheorized for the whole history of psychoanalysis. But I think it's not presumptuous to ask untheorized. I mean, I, uh, there was a, a, a the um, Joel Whitbrook who, who gave the lecture on Freud's tin ear 
that his aversion to music, um, in a sense, took music out of the equation uh, for a long time. Um, so the fact that it's untheorized is is makes an enormous amount of, of sense. Um, you know, I think about music and and there's a, obviously a lot about music and rhythm, but then uh, phenomenology. I'm thinking about music and lyrics. Uh, we had uh, Bruce Reese on the program a few years ago, and he, in his book, he talks about you know being in session and listening, and all of a sudden he hears uh, in his mind he hears the word respect, R E S P E C T, the song spelled out in his mind. Um, and he uses that to make an intervention or ask a question. Um, do any of you work with that way? Do you have lyrics that seem to come out of nowhere? They're not part of the, the patient's communication. Um, does that happen? Um, yeah, I'll chime in. Um, yeah, so, so we're certainly not the first to be uh, trying to put together thoughts about music and our understanding of the clinical situation in psychoanalysis. Um, I think where our conversation ended up going uh, was um, focusing less on um, music-like aspects of uh, what happens between uh, you know, patients and analysts. Um, and even uh, n- not so much on sort of uh, reverie or associations to pieces of music, but rather the, uh, I mean, almost as a, just a sort of challenge for ourselves. Could we think of the analytic project and the analytic situation in actual musicological terms as a kind of music in its own right? Um, you know, for example, uh, you mentioned rhythm, um, you know, to think of what is typically referred to as the frame of psychoanalysis, which, uh, among other things, refers to, you know, how long you meet for, how often you meet. Uh, to think of that, uh, not even as a metaphor for rhythm, but as an actual kind of rhythm, you know, what, one, like one of those avant-garde pieces of music that would take, you know, 500 years to play or something not quite that long but um that by doing something for a fixed period of time uh at regular intervals repeatedly um there is at least the potential for that kind of repetition to start to function as a rhythm um and by that we mean uh as a kind of music that uh changes consciousness itself um and uh you know in the case of the work that we do um creates an opportunity for uh consciousness to become rhythmized uh through it becoming a uh, time becoming a shared experience between in this case two people um, that doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, it, 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 it takes uh, some doing, and, and that's part of the case that we're making in the book. But um, that's the kind of uh, musical property that we got interested in, um, not to the exclusion of these other forms that music might take, um, which are also important, but in the very structure of what we do. Um, with respect to harmony and uh, uh, sorry, with respect to 
rhythm, but also with, with respect to harmony. Um, that's more in the, in the late, later part of the book. So, yeah, I, I mean, I was really struck by that, and I'm, I'm going to ask one of the questions from the book, but I, I had the thought you talked about the rhythm of we meet at this time, and when when you get into the groove of, you know, I see this patient Wednesday at 10, Wednesday at 10, the rhythm of that, and that when that is disturbed, how but everybody, both patient and analyst, feel it, and I have... I don't think I've ever had a time change that that isn't the first part of the patient's production when they come in, even, even if they initiated it, um, the, they, they will always say, they will always comment on, Oh, I've never spoken to you on a Tuesday or I've never spoken to you in the morning or the evening. They will always comment on, on the, the, the change in rhythm. Um, so then let me ask you, um, Adam, to continue with this, uh, you asked the question in the book, and I'll ask you, what does the frame frame? Because you talk about the functioning like a garden bed. To uh, what? Yeah, what is the frame frame? Um, the way we're thinking about it is, uh, you know, rhythm being not something that. So, to the extent that the frame operates rhythmically. It, it's not that it um, creates a rhythm that then uh, is perceived from the outside, but it actually rhythmizes perception itself. So in, in the example you just mentioned, when your patient comment, when your patients comment on, on changes, you know, what uh, comes through there is that there, there was something there that they noticed change. That, that means that they are relying on a form of continuity, a reliable form of continuity that only is brought to their attention once there's, uh, we could call it a syncopation. Um, and without that quality, uh, and this goes to the earlier question about what had been neglected, um, Peter's uh, work in, in, in the paper he wrote about music and in, in much of his work over the last several decades has uh, emphasized that without a, a, quali a quality of shared sensory experience, uh, the normal activity of analysis, uh, free association, let's say, uh, what we might typically think the frame frames, uh, is rendered obsolete. Uh, that without that fundamental association at the level of uh, sensation um, and that embeds us in time, um, there, there can be only dissociation, which is basically just spinning your wheels. So the frame, in this case, to the extent that it's a rhythm, it frames conditions in which uh, the... Um, more typical understanding of analytic work takes place. And I'll just say, if I may, that uh, in this sense, the frame is a musical device, in the sense that we're talking about music. Um, you know, the, the concept and the, the way we're trying to introduce music into the discussion here is that it plays actually an integral role in psychic experience. You know, that it actually allows us to 
get a sense of ourselves in time and space. Uh, and, you know, when we enter the analytic session, uh, we're entering an altered state of consciousness, right? one that's actually different from the usual state. And, you know, the frame actually is the inductive method for this, right? the inductive uh, device. It, it induces us into a different state. And so much we feel that so much of what goes on in analysis is at this level of going in and out of these states, uh, much as when you listen to music, it induces a state, right? It's not always a welcome state. Uh, we don't always like what we hear, and it can disturb us. But uh, we are uh, shifted from one state to another, and the frame is the sort of analytic context for that. I mean, of course, the frame includes the voice of the analyst, the way the analyst walks, talks, the, the timing of their interventions, right? We include that in the frame. Yeah, oh, there's so much there. Go ahead. I had a thought there. You know, we don't use these terms in the book, but it might uh, clarify things if we uh, divided music up into what we could call uh, primal or primordial music and the secondary music. And what we normally use, mean by the word music, like in any conversation in everyday life, it would be secondary music. You know, I'm listening to rock, I'm listening to classical, I'm singing, uh, I'm dancing. And this other deeper level of music, which we could call primordial music, is something that we, again, believe all human beings need to be brought into. And this starts in very, very early uh, infancy in the way usually the mother or whoever's caring for the baby uh, to use Peter's word, induces, or to use a word we use in the book, enchants, which means to sing in the infant into a shared sense of rhythm, uh, a shared kind of something like a key signature uh, or idiom. It's culturally shared, and of course, it's uh, shared in the family. Uh, and melody, and this, <clears throat> and choreography too, a way of moving the body, gestures, that sort of makes sense within this primordial musical system. And you can see this observing mothers and infants and, you know, in any culture, uh, there's an enormous amount of singing and sort of proto dancing. And we think that it, when the child is brought into this, it's the foundation for integrating uh, psyche and soma and then social relations and being able to perceive really uh, and make sense of just about any experience uh, that the child's gonna have from, from there on out. And in phenomenology, this would be on the level of being. Um, you know, we, we think this is what Heidegger was getting at with what he called an understanding of being or what Merleau-Ponty talks about when he talks about the body being geared into the world. Uh, this deep primordial musical system uh, facilitates this uh, or it creates the conditions of possibility for it. So that's, that's another uh, shot at the answer to the question, what is the frame framing? But we think that in psychoanalysis, we'll revisit, while we're doing all the things that are more familiar to us in psychoanalysis, we're also touching, revisiting, maybe reactivating or activating for the first time this level of primal, primordial music, like Adam and Peter Ripple talking about rhythmization uh, perception. So yeah, Michael, you 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 talk uh, enchantment, um, and let me ask the question that's put in the book: um, Why why uh, has psychoanalysis been ambivalent, uh, if not terrified of enchantment? You you made reference to this earlier, Christopher, but. 
uh, I mean, one one plausible explanation or at least a factor surely is Freud's own discomfort with that level of experience, uh, which he was, you know, terrified for, for good reason, um, as played out over the course of his life of uh, the collective as a breeding ground for uh, mass uh, psychosis. Uh, um, and so experiences that uh, took him beyond himself, uh, he uh, was cautious or even phobic about something he, he readily admitted. Um, and uh, something we take up um, in uh, one of the chapters of the book is uh, that the, the birth of psychoanalysis is in some sense precisely a renunciation of that form of uh, power that people have over each other um, in the sense that it was a renunciation of hypnosis, um, which is a word that uh, is uh, not infrequently uh, used to refer to uh, some forms of music, especially music that um, is uh, uses a lot of repetition, um, uh, has a hypnotic uh, quality, um, whether we're talking about uh, in classical music, you know, American minimalism, um, uh, dance music, like house, uh, trance, techno music, um, and even the, the looping samples that are used in hip hop music, um, all of these uh, create conditions in which uh, something beyond oneself is, is at play. And that was uh, precisely the thing that Freud, I think, was uh, anxious about um, when he wanted to move away from hypnosis and the power of suggestion into what he thought would be uh, a technology or, or a practice that would be relatively free of those elements. Um, and part of what we found ourselves wondering about is, well, maybe he didn't get rid of that uh, anyways, and, and, and or, um, maybe he didn't actually get rid of uh, that dimension of things. And maybe we, uh, in our work, neglect that dimension of things at our own risk, because if, as we uh, are positing, human beings are fundamentally, uh, you know, live at this level, um, if this is where we're alive, then uh, we're going to find a way to be taken up by something or other. And if analysis doesn't have uh, an attitude or a, a way of doing it that is, um, responsible and ethical in, in uh, that's another word that we could talk more about um, then uh, as we've seen play out you know human beings will find some other way to be taken up by something that is beyond themselves um, yeah. I hear somebody saying yes in agreement <laughs> that was that was me um, <clears throat> Unless Peter, you want to jump in here, I had some thoughts to add on to what Adam said. That um, he, this is a kind of a uh, generalization by Freud, but you know, as a as a man of the Enlightenment, um, you know, a represent, representative of the Enlightenment tradition, I think it's fair to say that Freud was especially interested in 
um, contributing to um, the development of a, the autonomous individual. And you know, with the introduction of the unconscious, he, he complicates that notion. You know, that while we, we have a, an ego that can be uh, in health, rational and reasonable and realistic, we also have a part of the mind, the unconscious, that is, you know, it's none of those things. So the project of autonomy gets complicated. But I think the goal was still autonomy for Freud, and that he identified autonomy, relative autonomy, uh, with maturity and health, and he identified. Uh, what we call heteronomy or, or loss of sort of self-governance with immaturity, regression, or like Adam pointed out in these group situations, um, psychosis uh, or different forms of mental illness. So I think Freud had a kind of allergy to these to these states, like he talks about in the introduction to um, civilization as discontents, maybe when he talks about the oceanic feeling. Um, that are that are shared in which the individual you know loses himself and he he diagnosed that as a form of um, infantile narcissism. Um, and of course, a lot of other psychoanalysts have had a lot of other things to say about that domain. But what we're trying to say is that, that there is this shared domain uh, of perception and embodiment and being that we think is, is, is best understood in musical terms that is, is a necessary condition for getting to all the other things that uh, psychoanalysis uh, might promote, including becoming a relatively autonomous uh, individual. But without that, without this uh, original sort of musicalization, uh, we're, we're lost in, in terms, especially in terms of um, uh, perception. Okay. Um, I had so many associations to the book, I don't even know where to start. Um, but I guess I'll stay with the autonomy piece because you, um, I guess, expand on that because you write in the book, music is never the creation of an individual in isolation to paraphrase uh, both Wittgenstein and, and Winnicott, there is no such thing as private music. Is that part of what you're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll pick up on that. Uh, yes, because um, where, um, you know, when, when a, a patient walks into our office, uh, we're not just uh, receptive and neutral and trying to understand. We're, in, in a sense, where um, the way we talk, the way we move, the way we respond is part of a kind of musical culture at some level. You know, it's a part of how we've all learned to move in relation to one another. And... Um, you know, this isn't uh, so. So nobody has just uh, got their own way of speaking. We're all speaking uh, some kind of communal in some kind of communal rhythms and tones. Uh, now, it is true that each one of us has developed our own sort of idiosyncratic way of uh, moving of seeing things, of, of, of communicating with our voices. Um, we've all, we're all idiosyncratic. If we're too idiosyncratic, then we begin to think of people being, you know, really isolated from one another. Um, that, you know, I don't want to talk about specific pathologies here, but, you know, people who really can't sink in with other people who are out of sync. 
So everything going on in the analytic setting is a kind of syncing up at this level uh, of the musical. And I think a lot of what goes on is whether we can find a shared music in this regard. I don't mean, you know, literally shared musical taste or things we want to listen to, but the sort of musicality level of how we affect one another, how my state is affected by your voice, by your prosody, by when you speak and when you don't speak, and how how you uh, inhabit yourself affects me. And that's the sort of hypnosis part that Adam was talking about. We're sort of in the realm of mutual influence all the time. And this has been underrepresented in the history of psychoanalysis. I mean, it's begun to be written about in recent decades. Um, you know, there's intersubjectivity, but we're talking about something beyond intersubjectivity. We're talking about how the, the need and the hunger to belong to a collective domain of sounds and sensation that allows us to feel that we're in the world. So from this point of view, the analytic setting is not a place to, just a place to explore the individuality of a patient and dig down to their past and their unconscious and their conflict. But it's a place, I uh, suppose, more ontological kind of place where one is where there's an opportunity to reconnect to things beyond oneself, you know, to reconnect to, uh, to being with others through these kind of musical domains. So, you know, autonomy is not the aim of the kind of analysis I'm talking about, you know. Uh, it's, it, there's a way in which analysis has become more a matter in our minds of connecting to the world rather than becoming autonomous. Michael, you're raising your hand. Yeah, I'll just, throw another thought here. just to get back to the question about enchantment, I think, I think Peter, what Peter's talking about is what we call enchantment, which uh, again means etym etymologically means to sing in, to, to bring one into a shared uh, musicality, a shared song, and that that has to be, that we believe established in health, in, in infancy. Uh, and it can be established or reestablished uh, in the psychoanalytic relationship. There has to be a shared music, a shared way of uh, being, a shared way of moving, a shared way of, of modulating the voice. It doesn't have to be identical, but it has to be intelligible to both. And this is something that usually happens implicitly. Um, but when it's when it's clicking, you, you can feel it. Um, so that's when enchantment has occurred, the, the, let's say the two members of the analytic couple have been brought into a good enough shared musicality. And then it's sort of a double entendre because we think that when enchantment occurs, the, the world sort of comes to life, that, mm -hmm. that it, it makes possible a certain uh, enlivened uh, perception uh, of oneself, uh, of the other person, of, of the surround, and that that's the necessary condition for someone to become more of an individual if they want to, if that's part of the goal of the analysis, to, be, uh, to become more autonomous, to develop their own voice, to develop their own style. It's against the backdrop of a shared way of being, a shared music. Well, then I want to go to something early on, because when I, I read this sentence, and I may have misunderstood it, I thought, I thought the reverse. You say, um, uh, the analytic frame 
may be usable as a rhythm from the get-go, the analyst drops the beat and the dance begins. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. The patient drops the beat. I, that was my sense, right? I'm, yes, we have the established time. They come into the office, but sometimes they, but I, I, I've always assumed the, the, that the patient, you know, they, they, they start the session and they, they, they drop the beat and then I'm supposed to follow. So did I misread that? Um, well, I mean, maybe semantics, but you know, the, the, so, so the, the session starts uh, according to the calendar that, you know, that is uh, managed. Uh, I think I, we think by the analyst, it's not, it's not a, the ma uh, maintaining or managing of the frame is not a, um, the responsibility for that is not symmetrical between uh, patient and analyst. So going back to this question of what, what the frame frames, uh, the you know, analyst has a setup that the patient is invited into and, and the, the session can start in silence. It can start uh, in, with, with words, but the session starts and ends uh, and, and, and as it is managed by the analyst, and hopefully this recedes into the background. I think what we're saying in that sentence is that if things have gone relatively well or well enough, um, as uh, the, the kind of thing that Mike was just talking about, then it's likely that someone can make use of this setup from, from, uh, from the downbeat. Um, but if there's been trouble uh, in that domain, uh, um, there may be the, the music, the, 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 the musical, um, the analyst as musician uh, may be necessary, may be called upon to, uh, as we're using this word, induce uh, an experience that uh, maybe for the first time uh, turns something that would otherwise be non-human and mechanical into uh, a, a lived and shared experience. And um... we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We're talking about, you know, syncing up and, and provision and maybe what uh, in the key of Winnicott we would call holding. Um, but the, the frame equally frames um, uh, a kind of um, surplus uh, energy or heat that inevitably... Uh, gathers and and forms and uh, emerges and actually disrupts uh, the very uh, holding that that uh, the holding disrupts itself. Uh, one of the great pleasures of of writing this book, I think, for for Peter and myself, um, was getting to learn a lot about Laplanche from from Mike. And so, in, in the key of Laplanche, we could say that the frame. Mike will check my work here. Uh, uh, frames what, what he called the fundamental anthropological situation. situation yeah. um, and that's a situation that's not just of synchrony and 
provision, but also of asynchrony and disruption and uh, seduction. So out of uh, the, the same process that induces uh, the patient into psychoanalytic process also seduces or seduces uh, the patient. Um, those, those two forces are, are both at play and to some extent are in tension with each other. And so the question is what, what will allow these two people to uh, live together uh, it, it, through this work and through this process. And that's where we think the, the, the music comes in because music has all kinds of ways of uh, living out the tension between regularity, um, reliability and surprise or disjunction or accent. Um, if, if that can be uh, wrangled by anything, we think it, it's, it would be by music. Can I just reiterate one little part of that, um, which is um, that you know we may think that the patient starts the session, but you know one of the things we're getting at is that the analyst starts the session, whether they know it or not, just by the way they open the door to the waiting room. You know, I mean, there's a there's a, a, a time signature right there. Uh, you know, I was aware yesterday that I was starting to open the door very gently with a particular patient, you know, just to, it starts right there. And, you know, obviously we want to, it's not as if we don't think the patient should lead the way with their material, but I think it's an illusion to think that we are not setting the, the tempo uh, ourselves. Um, to some degree. So I think it's worthwhile being aware of that. The other thing is that with certain patients, more dissociated patients, I think we actually have to go further and sometimes take the initiative in setting up some communicative pattern. Uh, because otherwise, you know, the patient is left to have to produce material in this obligatory way, in this obligatory tone, and that things can only change if we change, not the patient. And what I mean by change there is change our mode of presence, our sensory, uh, our, our presence as a sensory being in the office. Now, you know, that, that can take a million different forms. Sometimes it means we start speaking to the patient in a certain tone, and that helps them to get going, you know. Um, and I think people do that all the time. I just think it's worth recognizing that there's a role for that uh, in clinical work. And the last thing I want to say is that we're talking about enchantment and what Michael was so clearly saying about how important it is to connect at this level. But uh, by the same token, the other side of the coin is that music is also an imposition on people. You know, that we, we listen to music and we don't like it, uh, or we hear something playing and we don't like what it does to us. We wouldn't turn it off. And by the same token, the analyst's music, as it were, you know, the way he, he speaks, the way he moves, the, the, the mode of his uh, response may feel like an imposition on the patient. So there is something about finding a shared, uh, um, type of musical experience that's 
that's, I think, vital. And Michael was speaking to that. Yeah, Michael, do you want to add anything more to that? Yeah, and I think Peter, you know, describes this so beautifully in his own work. Um, but I think what we're, what Adam and Peter were both um, talking about, in, in addition to many other things just now, is the, another concept that we introduced in the book, which is conduction. Uh, starting with the quote that you read, Christopher, meaning that, um, and, and this is a term that we added to these other two, induction that comes out of Peter's work originally, this, this you know, original way that we believe that the child and perhaps later the adult needs to be brought into musicality um, to, to sort of, to begin to become fully human. And then picking up on the launch and picking up on early Freud, there's seduction. There's a way that that goes astray and gets complicated. Uh, and that's a, a longer story that we can talk a lot about, but that that introduces something into the psyche that has already been induced that it then has to grapple with, you know, coming from the other and from the plunge. This is where infantile sexuality comes from, which is anarchic, disruptive, and difficult, but it's also the source of our vitality, sexually speaking. Um, so then there's a the question of what 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 do we do with that? How do, how do we learn how to plunge say translate? Um, I, our, our driver is infantile sexuality, which is the product of seduction. So we introduced this concept of conduction. We have to learn how to trans, well, consciously translate, manage, musicalize, do something worth doing with our sexuality. And we learn how to do this from other people. Um, we, we, we posit. Uh, and that this occurs also in, in analysis. There's always a way, as Peter was just saying, that the analyst has to find um, the, the right tone, uh, the, the right tempo, the right rhythm, um, the right posture, the right choreography to connect with the patient and start to provide a, a kind of language or music in, in our terms that eventually the, the patient can use uh, to find more livable forms for what is, um, you know, what traditionally psychoanalysis would call their, their unconscious and top sexuality. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I, again, this book, I had so many associations to what you just said. And I guess the uh, getting in sync, uh, the the analyst where the, the two of you hear the music, um, I, I feel that, in a sense, most acutely in its absence. I don't know if anybody here has had the experience of uh, taking on a patient whose analyst has died and... And, and an analyst for whom they were in sync, where the music was was there and rhythmized, um, and its its absence is is really really felt um, when but when you're the new uh, the new person. Um, you've mentioned, I think, Michael uh, earlier, and then just now, you um, Peter, you were saying a piece of music that you may not like what it says. And I'm, I associated, uh, in the book to, uh, you have a passage of, uh, Freud in hysteria that finishes with, um, all the subject's attention is concentrated, um, on the process of satisfaction. Uh, and then you say, might we say then that psychoanalysis at its most transformative induces the hypnoid state that constitutes an essentially needed experience of satisfaction. And then jumping to the end, um, Freud calling it on binding morning 
uh, in both cases, the self is reorganized to accommodate a fresh experience of the world, um, which goes to what you, you talk about the music in the moment, um, ushered in by what Beyond called catastrophic change, the kind of experience or psychical adjustment that changes the world as one knows it. Um, obviously, there's a, a lot there, but the word satisfaction um, really struck me because certainly in the United States, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of feelings, but you can, you can have satisfaction even with music you hate. You may not have happiness, you may not have pleasure, you might have unpleasure, but you can, you can have satisfaction. And when I read the Beyond quote about catastrophic, uh, I was reminded that um, Ferenczi, when he wrote Talasa, when he translated it to Hungarian, he called it catastrophe. And that his ideas, the, 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 the relived catastrophe over and over again, is, you know, all of us coming out of the ocean and the separation. So it was just those were the associations because, it, again, it brings us back to the oceanic, which Freud couldn't access. Um, I'll just quickly respond, then others can. I, I want to sort of, I, I realized the way I was putting it earlier was not was not helpful and accurate. It isn't so much that the important thing is not that I like a piece of music. That's not it. And I think this is what you're picking up on, Christopher. The important thing is that I can enter some musical domain that can affect me. And... You know, the real difficulty for a lot of our patients and a lot of us these days, that we live in such an overstimulating environment that's actually so impersonal. The, the soundscapes we live in are so impersonal. You know, we just hear music blasting us from all around. Uh, the problem these days is not that I might like or not like a piece of music. In fact, that's not an issue. The problem is that I may not be able to actually feel that I can enter into some domain of music that can affect me in a meaningful way, you know, that can allow me to change my sense of where I am or, or what I am. And that kind of problem, which we could call isolation, let's say, you know, sensory isolation, where I can only listen to the same music all the time and I can't bear anything else, it's not so much a matter of taste. It's a matter of feeling that I don't know how to go beyond myself in the sensory domain. You know, I can't join in in anything. I think that's so much, um, so relevant to the work we do with patients these days. Can they, can they sort of leave the isolated, the silo of their soundscapes and find something else? And what they may find, they may not like. Uh, you're quite right, or it may be disturbing for a while. All, all new forms of music disturb us uh, until we get, you know, until we get something from it. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, mm -hmm. affirm what you were saying, Christopher. Yeah, and I'm struck by the phrase uh, "enter into" because that's the the phrase that is frequently used for analysis, right? I mean, this is really splitting it here, but one might get a therapist, one enters into analysis. Yes. And that, that's the, what Peter just said, I think, is the 
a beautiful description of the of the kind of satisfaction that we're talking about there. What we mean by the word satisfaction that we, we're saying in different places in the book and implying throughout it that there's a human need uh, for livable musical forms uh, from from the get go. That this is something that uh, is uh, um, uh, inherent endogenous in our in our species. That we actually like, we are musical creatures. We need to find musical forms, we need to find a groove, we need to find a rhythm, we need to find a way of moving in the world that connects us with others um, to make sense of our experience and to bear being human. And that's that's this basic need that is either satisfied or frustrated. And often uh, a way of understanding the reason people seek analysis is that need, this need is frustrated. They may have all, all kinds of conscious thoughts about that are valid about what's going on in their life. But beneath all that, we think there often is an absence of a livable musical form. And, and again, that's this unconscious, implicit musicality. You know, it may show up in a person's consciousness in a derivative form in a particular piece of music, a song, a symphony, whatever. But beneath that, we're saying there's this, this is what the frame frames, uh, this deep shared uh, coordination uh, of mind, body, perception, and relations with others, which we think is musical in its nature. I was I was struck, um, Christopher, that you read that passage uh, after your sort of clinical example or a type of clinical situation that you found yourself in uh, with a patient whose analyst has died. Um, and I'm glad you're bringing in the subject of loss. Uh, you know, the, the passage you read is coming from a section of the book where we're thinking about um, a kind of absence, a kind of uh, relief from being an individual or a subject that one, you know, goes around thinking one is the rest of the time, um, that uh, is made possible by uh, music and by uh, the experience of being in analysis or to the extent that those are maybe two ways of saying the same thing. That's something that one can, you know, elect to do if, um, historical ways of being have become uh, rigid or are uh, creating frustration, um, limiting uh, the, the patient in, in, in some way that they'd like to loosen up. Um, but this also happens, you know, not on our schedule uh, in the case of loss, uh, where uh, in, in the case of profound loss, you know, the, the, the world as one knows it, uh, as one perceives it is uh, significantly altered. And there's something about um, maybe especially rhythm, uh, that aspect of music that uh, keeps us going. And, you know, really every culture in, in human history uh, understands this and, and probably understands it better than uh, the one where the, the four of us are currently living in. But uh, the way that uh, communities, you know, gather to uh, create and sustain a sense of continuity so that the bereaved is free to uh, be undone. Um, you know, that, that's a very kind of poignant uh, image of how what we think of as, as music holds us so, so that we can be released um, or sometimes are, are, are shattered um, by 
loss. This, this is the central principle, even in Freud, that if we can't bear to lose the world, if we have to hang on to it, uh, then we're, we get sucked into a melancholic process uh, in which time you know, can't go on. Whereas if there's something that is creating, structuring time in a reliably continuous way, uh, then we are free to discover the world anew. Uh, you, know. when you, you talk about loss. There was a, a sentence in the book that I just wrote, say more. <laughs> and it says, nothing makes one sing like knowing what one is missing. What does that mean? Well, um... I think I think it's what Adam just said. I learned, you know, that there's a way in which the 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 being bound to into the world or woven into the world, uh, which we feel music is a very power, you know, plays a central role in that. It's not the only thing, but it's probably the most basic way we're woven into the world. Uh, is a way of being. Yeah, we, even if our sense of ourselves is disturbed, even if losses are so great that we feel we could die from pain, uh, that being woven into the world is actually, a, a, it is a little bit like the Winnicott notion of the holding environment. I mean, it's analogous to the sort of primary narcissism that Winnicott talked about, where the whole world is us, or we can enter the world, you know, we have access to the world. And then the individual details of life uh, have to be dealt with, you know, and sexuality comes into that, loss comes into that. Uh, But there's something about not being able to be woven into the world that's a different kind of disaster. You know, it's a disaster of being uh, unworlded, you know, without a place in the world. And uh, I think analysis provides, whether it knows us, we know it or not, we're providing the patient with a sort of a venue or a site to reaccess uh, the world. Yes. Yeah. When you were talking about that, then go, well, go ahead. I was just going to say that that sentence you read, uh, Christopher, um, comes from a chapter of the book that is, um, uh, among other things, about jokes. Um, And uh, so it's a bit of a joke. But, you know, in in addition to uh, what Peter just said, I mean, the the cliche answer would be, you know, everybody kind of knows that um, or the the cliche is that uh, happy people don't make the best music. Um, that it's actually something about, you know, whether it's a breakup album or a a symphony, uh, that there's something about um, longing and suffering that that makes for good music. Um, And uh, even even the the great poets of psychoanalysis, uh, many of whom we've mentioned already, uh, one presumes they tend to know something about what they're missing out on, um, not to mention uh, the, the sort of strange bedfellows that uh, we're playing with in that chapter, um, namely uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, Kanye West, um, who both, uh, you know, in complicated ways that uh, we won't be able to um, elaborate too much here, but but we do in the book, 
um, are uh, poets of, of suffering, what they're missing out on. Yeah, I was thinking of, of two uh, references here. One, um, Jeanette Winterson, the uh, novelist, opens one of her novels of uh, with the question, why is the measure of love loss? And the other thought that I, or the other thing I associated to was a line from Paul Simon, where he writes, sometimes even music cannot substitute for tears. Um, but Adam, you, you, you teed me up. What? It's time to talk about jokes because you, the, the book asks, you know, what happens if the joke book had as much influence as the dream book? So what are your thoughts? Well, we'd be laughing our way through the analytic hours, I guess, but, uh, Adam, why don't you speak to this? Well, this, this, this came up, um, pretty early in, in the process of, of writing the book, uh, which for the most part follows the, the trajectory of, um, the process of writing it. But, but this, this actually came up early and then, uh, didn't quite fit in, uh, with what we were focusing on, what we were speaking about earlier. So, uh, we returned to it in the second half. Um, but the main idea we were playing with, um, is the way that, uh, jokes and admittedly the joke book is uh, has not aged very well uh, the jokes are not very funny in it but the the um interest in jokes and uh the way that they necessarily involve or sort of summon two people uh in a bodily way in an involuntary bodily way um in real time um and perhaps even in a musical way you know laughter has its own uh rhythm and musical qualities that you know any notion of a sort of individual subject with their unconscious over there that is you know bringing in the dream they had last night and presenting it to the enlightened analyst to interpret i mean uh that just doesn't map on to uh the experience of laughing with someone or or sharing a joke or being surprised um by by something being funny uh it's all right there the 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 um uh, aspects of the process that we feel have, have been underrepresented, uh, you know, are in full display when you're uh, laughing together. Yeah. I was trying to think, uh, I love, uh, I hope I think everybody does. I don't think I'm alone. Everybody, I love to laugh. In fact, I'm going to see a, a comedian tonight at radio city. So love, love, love laughing. And yet, the moments of laughter that happen spontaneously in session, I think, are are unrivaled. That's my experience. And in fact, um, this is, I think, Michael, this might be the secondary process of, of, of music, but, and this is grossly embarrassing to say, I was going to try to disguise this as a patient just now, but I'm like, that doesn't, this is a true story. My very young 20s early analysis and I'm there and I'm lying on the couch and I said I've got a song stuck in my head and I just I don't it just won't leave my head and my analyst said what's the song and I said there's a place in the world for the angry young man (laughs) and we both get what I'm saying at the exact same moment and we didn't laugh for the whole 50 minutes but that was the entire session right there I'm like oh okay (laughs) that's what's going on um 
yeah, I think laughter's um, just an, incredible. Um, and then you ask in the in the book, would laughter replace tears as the signal of clinical breakthrough? Um, and that's uh, one of the major thinkers of the the school that I study and teach in basically says that we know when the patient laughs, we've reached the unconscious. So do you all work with humor in your practice? I mean, th- thankfully, it, it comes up a lot. Um, spontaneously, I, you know, it, it, it's like having a dream. You sort of can't plan for it, but you can be uh, open to it, available to it, uh, interested in it. And uh, among other things, you know, uh, Humor is a matter of timing and shared understanding, just just like music. And you know, comedians always say that jokes work. You know, basically because the, not only, but basically because the, the uh, comic has good timing and is, is in touch with the audience. So um, I, I certainly take humor, you know, spontaneous laughter, the heartier the better, as a sign that something's probably going going right, going well in, in a session or a treatment. And the absence of humor is a sign that that something. Yeah, I, I, the only reason I ask that is that um, I had one very influential supervisor. I really loved her, um, but she was uh, she thought humor had no place in treatment, and she's she's long past, so I can't ask her. Um, and she was clinically brilliant. She was my single case supervisor. I mean, she was really wonderful, but she she thought no patients want you to take everything seriously. Now I've not found that to be remotely true, but. I didn't know if there's other others who shared that idea. Well, I I find that I have to be a little careful with my sardonic tendencies. I find sometimes I just want to be, you know, darkly sardonic uh, as a way of coping, way of coping, maybe, and also a way of finding something, you know, some way to to make contact. Uh, and cut through things. So, you know, I think humor sometimes I have to keep it in check, keep in check what I think is humor, because uh, it may not be so funny for the patient. Uh, the quote just came to mind from a line from Adam Phillips, where somewhere he wrote, I think, uh, if Freud taught us anything, it's that it's not more truthful to be serious. Uh, by which I think he meant humorless, you know, that, that I agree, of course, with what Peter said, humor can be used defensively, you know, like anything, but, um, but oftentimes, you know, the, the funny moments are, are moments where something really truthful has come to light and, and there's pleasure in it for usually hopefully both parties. And perhaps even something about a capacity to uh, be tickled or, um, speaking of Adam Phillips, or um, uh that, you know, in terms of breakthrough, you know, uh, maybe we've all had an experience. Somebody, I think Peter maybe uh, uh, brought up um, early in our conversations, uh, the situation of working in, a, in an office with uh, other, other clinicians down the hall and um, the, the painful experience of, of hearing another dyad laughing uh, um, if, if one is not able to laugh with a particular patient. Um, so yeah, it being a sign of something going well, if maybe not, you know, deliberately applying humor as some sort of technical uh, conscious intervention, but that, that um, patients and analysts have become uh, 
synchronized enough, but also, um, uh, you know, usually when something's funny, it, it, uh, there's, there's uh, as, as Freud was, you know, theorized, um, there, there's, there's work being done. There's um, something's being transformed uh, that was not admissible in any other way. Um, so, you know, uh, maybe it shouldn't replace crying, but at, at least uh, uh, live alongside it as um, uh, in, indicator of, of something profound happening. Yeah, well, well, Adam, when you talk about you know hearing something down the hall, this happens at our uh, institute where we have uh, the classes in the evenings. And if you're in the class next to the room where the other class is laughing, you really wonder what you're doing wrong. What are they doing over there? They're obviously having a much better experience. Um, I want to pull two passages together with something that has come up throughout this this discussion, um, and two passages together, and then something that appeared uh, in the New York Times recently. Like I was reading the book and I read this, so bear with me. Um, so we suggest this is your, your book. We suggest that the primordial source shaping our most fundamental perceptions, emotions, thoughts, and comportment rests not merely upon the forbidden pleasures of repressed sexuality, but more importantly, upon a publicly accessed, shared, metaphysical weave of communal practices in which we are embedded, into which we are inducted as members by our early caregivers, and without which it is impossible to have a human life, let alone an unconscious in the first place, and then uh, somewhere else in the book, we are first claimed as members of our home cultures, interpolated as new members by the melody of speech that surrounds our infant bodies, the habitus of the way we were held, the air that we breathe. Um, so that's obviously Laplanche is, is there. But this really, so I, I'm reading that, and then this was a really interesting article in the New York Times uh, about something called Bama Rush. So it's a sorority uh, at the University of Alabama. And I think it might be a Netflix documentary, but it's they put out these videos so that you can rush the sorority. Um, and it says, uh, the Rushies who wish to join the dancers' ranks give daily reports with noticeable twang on what they're wearing. This is, I think, the relevant part. Their southern accents are the linguistic equivalent of pointing a ring light at their shiny hair and tasteful makeup. Um, for a mainstream culture, for a mainstream culture struggling to adapt to the ways that gender is exploding all around them, that accent is seductive. It says these are ideal women from a regional culture that values traditional gender norms. Um, and I just, it, it, it struck me um, how, and I think when you mentioned in the book and, and Peter, you mentioned earlier, the prosody, how important accent is, the analyst accent uh, and, and how, it, how it feeds into it. And that um, people can hear the music of the accent more than, more than the content, I guess. 
So I just drew a parallel. You don't know anything about this, do you? I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I think that this is that everybody has an accent, if you know. And accent, the way we accent, uh, the way our speech carries a kind of embodied pattern of being in the world and of movement is exactly what we're talking about, right? That this is the realm that goes on in analysis all the time. And God knows how much um, of what goes on in the treatment is to do with this, you know, because it's all, uh, it's not something that can easily be uh, notated, you know, turned into... uh, interpretations, observations. It's just, it's felt and it's lived. So I think this is very much part of what we're talking about. It's also the, you know, signature of this thing that um, was in what you read, Christopher, uh, from our book um, that we ended up calling The Weave. Uh, um, I'll I'll just tee this up for Mike, but the you know it, in other words a sort of you know the in the new york times piece there they use the word twang um you know i thought guitars have twang you know like to the extent that that is a musical phenomenon it, it, it it's a it's a musical um uh expression or, or manifestation of you know the the soil the the um the stuff out of which uh you know anything like a, a, a being a, an individual or feeling like one is oneself only ever comes out of and um this is drawing on work you know mostly done outside of psychoanalysis uh that, that mike knows more about than i do um so maybe pick it up there yeah what's the work uh well, the, the word, it, it's all over the place, again, in um, existential phenomenology, especially um, starting with Maurice Merleau-Ponty and a bunch of other people who have been inspired by his work, including the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, and that's where we took the word habitus from, which is very close to what we call the weave. It's, it's a, a whole way of, of moving, uh, a bodily component, and, and that would include a manner of speech. That gives uh, that that informs a, a way of perceiving, understanding, and, and being in the world, um, and it's really interesting. It can be really interesting to encounter someone with a different habitus, like, for example, the uh, women in this article with their southern accent. For somebody who doesn't live in that part of the country, that it it might uh, offer a new musical form, in this case, a new twang that can. Uh, shape and and provide a a new experience of whatever it is that the person might be describing. Um, And in terms of the accent of the analyst, I can speak to this from my own experience in analysis. My my, uh, analyst had a a pretty strong accent from another region of the country, uh, uh, different from mine. And often the most important thing that would happen in the session for me would be the way he would say something. Uh, from from his accent that would give me a a slightly or sometimes grossly different affective uh, sense of what we were talking about. It would open up a new way of experiencing, um, you know, whatever it is that we were dealing with. 
I think Peter's accent is one of my favorite genres of music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My illness was not Peter, by the way. <laughs> Just to clarify. Well, funnily enough, you know, if I go to England, they think my accent is pretty bad, you know, because it means something different over there. You know, it's not English enough. So accents can carry all kinds of vibes, you know. Yeah, yeah. So then let's, uh, Michael, let's pick up on this um because the, the book, uh, Translating the Language We're Using, it is only possible to have a sense of self when one is already secured in the weave of culture. Um, is this Laplanche getting secured into the, the weave of culture in his um, the fundamental anthropological situation? I think it's implied in Laplanche, but I don't know of anywhere where he actually talks about the way that uh, the infant is sort of inculcated, is brought into the shared culture of the parents. I think it's sort of, again, taken for granted. And you know, he, he's more interested in seduction, so these unconscious communications that occur between parent and child that gives the ultimately the, the child a kind of challenge, a kind of question that they use the tools of culture to try to answer uh, in, in their own way. So I think it's, it's implied in the background in Laplanche. You know, if this wasn't happening, the rest of Laplanche, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, but again, there are, there are lots of different um, thinkers, you know, from mostly, without, mostly outside of psychoanalysis, but I think there's some within that, um, that address this, I think, original. Well, I, I think well. that Winnicott is, very much uh, in the background here, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you could say that when, when in Winnicott's language, and Peter and Adam jump in here anywhere to add to what I'm saying, that the, the, the way of holding, that the environmental pr provision uh, is never occurring in some neutral uh, space outside of culture. Uh, that the, the way the, in Winnicott's world, you know, the way that the mother holds the infant is informed by, there's a certain style of holding, there's a, there's a way of being with the baby that's informed by the cultural habitus, the cultural weave, as we call it. There's a rhythm to it, there, there's a music to it, there, there's, a, there's a tempo to it. Um, so in being a good, providing a good enough environment, providing a good enough hold, the, the mother is introducing or in our language inducing the infant into a cultural system when things work well when they don't work well um the child not only is going to have various types of difficulties that winnicott describes but we could also say that they may be more at odds with their cultural weave and that's another place we think psychoanalysis can uh can can offer something that hasn't been uh fully theorized yeah, and you know we're we're sitting around a kitchen table writing this at a moment when uh, this weave that we're talking about, um, uh, you know, had been feeling like dark times, um, and you know that was before we had to uh, to switch to Zoom to to finish uh, writing the book because we couldn't be in the same room together anymore. So. Um, speaking of thinking about what one is missing, I mean, we're we're, we're talking about something that is uh you know in peril a, a fraying weave 
um, sometimes being, you know, actively uh, dismantled uh, by um, uh, certain world leaders. And um, um, so, and, and, you know, through, through the lens of, uh, you know, a lot of Peter's work, this is showing up clinically that um, people come in who are, uh, you know, either don't have access to or are no longer embedded in um, a world that interpolates them as, as one of us and claims them, um, which, and, and plugs them into this, this network of uh, culture that, you know, gives us the stuff with which to um, understand ourselves and express ourselves and become ourselves. And, you know, waiting for somebody to kind of free associate their way out of that problem is, is uh, you know, uh, doesn't, doesn't work. Um, so this is calling our attention to um, what might need to be repaired uh, if, if things are impaired at the level of uh, being woven into uh, the fabric of, of uh, culture. Um, and this has to be done sensitively, right? It's not simply that the analyst says, well, here, take my culture. You're, 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 you're one of me now. Um, that would be, you know, we say neither uh, induction nor seduction, but a kind of abduction. Um, it, it needs to be uh, negotiated uh, sensitively uh, and with a sense of ethical responsibility. But well, that work is going to be done. Yeah. Please, Peter, yeah. Can I just add one thing to that? I mean, uh, the, the, the particular way in which the analyst provides a space for this is really uh, important, right? It's how do we provide a place? It's like a cultural site. You know, where the patient's coming for something. It's not just to fix their object relationships from the Oedipal phase, right? It's to to be able to move in and out of cultural the domains of cultural belonging, and to be able to. And I think here yeah, Laplanche and Winnicott can be brought together. You know, um, to become almost a sort of uh, adept at not just translation, that's the planche thing, but at transitionality, you know, being able to transition in and out and to be able to do that effectively. And what I mean is to be able to transition into cultural domains to make use of them because we need culture to, to become ourselves and to uh, it, it make ourselves, keep ourselves alive as beings. The trouble, of course, is that cultures themselves are not always uh, uh, benign. You know, cultures are used by political and social forces to uh, adopt us into belief systems and this and that that can be very ugly. So, you know, this isn't this is a picture of how it's complex, how important it is to recognize how much we need to be woven in. But then we have to also recognize that, you know, we might be woven into something that's pretty destructive and ugly. And th this is the complexity, I think, of what we're dealing with. And, you know, people who opt out, as it were, unconsciously and just cannot participate and have to live just 
in a sort of isolated soundscape um, are particularly vulnerable, I think, to both, you know, the distress of being isolated and also to being inducted into collective systems that might be quite problematic. In other words, a cult is something that might speak specifically to individuals who've been uh, dropped out of the weave, you know, who have found themselves isolated. Because I think cults and things like that are very canny about speaking to what it means to feel disaffected, you know, and, and alone, obviously, right? I mean, that's obvious. So there's something about analysis where we're doing cultural work. We're not just doing interpersonal work. Well, I, yeah, in fact, I think tag, you... Go ahead. I just wanted to tag on to what Peter was saying. I, I wanted to mention that Peter has been writing about this territory for over well over 20 years um, in, in his own work, really groundbreaking papers that have um, you know wonderful uh, clinical descriptions uh, of the kind of adjustments that he's had to come up with uh, in his approach to patients to address these these problems. They're increasingly common. I think they've only become more common since he was onto them ahead of most of us. And I, I thought again of the uh, the concept of enchantment that when people are suffering with dissociation, dissociative disorders, and isolation. Uh, it, we, we could call that a state of disenchantment. You know, the, the world has lost its vitality, it's lost its magic, it's lost its interest, it's lost its relatability. It doesn't interpolate us anymore, as Adam was saying. So it's another concept, another way to think about what we're up to, uh, hopefully, in psychoanalysis, is to find a way for the world to become re-enchanted. Um, but like Peter was saying, there are sort of pseudo-weaves or, or, or pseudo-cultures Maybe they could be cults, sometimes they could be ideologies, but they tend to be closed systems. And I think that there's a kind of pseudo enchantment that they can offer. Uh, in the, I, I think we could call the weave as we try to describe it in the book as an open system. I, I thought of um, Winnicott's idea of the, when Peter was speaking of, of the location of cultural experience. Um, and that, that being where we live, uh, uh, a la the, the title of our book. Um, and for how much for Winnicott, who was uh, an amateur musician himself, who um, according to uh, his wife would um, bang out a few chords on the piano after uh, the day's work, um, always had to do with what he called play, which is uh, leads us right, right to music and, um, can even think of you know the squiggle game as a kind of trading eights or something where you take a figure and and um, uh, improvise on it and um, so the, uh, where where there is um, cultural uh, work being done as as Peter was saying I think there's often a kind of music playing. I think uh, just to go to to the enchantment um if you think uh i'm thinking of like it just from tv and the movies intelligence briefings where someone is you know read in read me in to to whatever the situation is we might say that analysis is you're asking sing me in sing me in um and i 
I think all of this is is in this passage um, where you write at bottom the human being seeks and needs induction. We're thus radically suggestible and susceptible to influence and information, possibly X formation, by the environment. A dethroning of the ego that Freud could never accept. Our need for enchantment renders us essentially and permanently vulnerable to being taken over and the crucial distinction between whether we are malevolently exploited or benevolently induced into culture is harrowingly historical, a matter of what world into which one is born. That's you. Um, we're uh, coming to the end of our time. What has not been covered that you would like listeners to, to know or to think about? Um, I mean, everybody's going to go buy the book because they want to read about Nietzsche and Kanye West. Um, that's the, Adam, that was the best, like, tease ever. Um, but in terms of just, uh, overall, anything that we've missed or not touched on that you think is essential and important? I'll just say that, you know, not by any uh, design, but just what we've, what we found emerged from um, jamming like this over and over again, uh, arranged itself in something like a kind of sequence. Um, you know, we've already mentioned from, uh, we've we, we've mentioned different plot points along this sequence, but just to to say it in order once that, um, you know, we, we we've already talked about you know how induction um, creates uh, seduction that then can be um, uh, lived out uh, through what we're calling uh, conduction um, from. From there, you know, once there is a sense of of um, being able to participate and 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 live together uh, in in a collective and and shared way, um, people start to get uh, perhaps um, brave enough or, or or feel supported enough to uh, experiment and to um, uh, let things. Uh, come through that uh, might have previously uh, not been there or been uh, safeguarded against. Um, and this is how we think of, you know, improvisation and music, uh, that once you've got chops and you know your scales, uh, things start to happen. Um, all, all great musicians talk about this kind of experience. But then that eventually, you know, sort of coalesces into something like a style, a personal style. Peter was speaking to this uh, earlier. Um, so that that uh, sequence, uh, that's how we think, you know, about somebody sort of becoming oneself or recognizable as a self. Um, and then, of course, when you know, life happens and, and things change and, and loss comes in, all of that uh, can get uh, broken apart. And, and, and um, if one is held in the music, uh, then there's an opportunity to be, you know, what Winnicott called unintegrated, um, and which could potentially start the whole process over again. So 
that, that's just how we, uh, that, that's the shape that emerged from these conversations that, that sort of links these different uh, concepts together that, we, that we've been talking about today. Um, I, I don't want to add much more. I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think Adam just sort of uh, gave an overall sense of the shape that emerged. Um, appreciate your your questions uh, and comments. Uh, you know, the only small thing I would add, say is that I think we touched on this, that I think the, this kind of being, the way music um, brings us into and sort of it forms a kind of pattern existence where we can be in something together with others and that it affects how we feel within ourselves in such a profound way. It means that music is also, there's an ambivalence we have about it. You know, it can affect us. We need it, but it can also uh, affect us in ways that uh, are disruptive to us. So, you know, the, the idea of enchantment should include disenchantment, you know, or not dis unenchantment, um, the way that we go in and out of feeling that we can be, um, that music can, can do something for us and how it affects us. Uh, so it's not a conflict-free zone, you know. Uh, So then, well, yeah, so then my, my thought to that is, of course, that then the, the work, in quotes, is for both analyst and analysand to tolerate the disenchantment for as, as long as it needs to be um, tolerated. I was thinking about music and, and entering into it and how it, that um, uh, I don't necessarily appreciate the, the opera, um, but I, I had to work at Met Opera for two years to when I was doing my, my training. And so I got to see opera for free. So I tried to, to learn. And um, there's two things. I had two experiences. One, I had the experience, again, I don't know any of these things. I don't really appreciate it but there was one moment in Don Carlo where the the singing finished and I was with everybody you know leapt to my feet it was almost like being pulled out of my seat it was absolutely rapturous I'm screaming you know the way that it, it was it was astonishing um at that moment it's a number of years old I'll never forget it but also in terms of disenchantment, you know, if you go to a Broadway show and you don't like it, people leave, um, they don't come back, whatever. There's no, there's no expression of the disenchantment. In opera, if they do not like, they boo quite loudly. They express their disenchantment. And I don't know that of any other performance. So that was my associations. Michael, what should we, what would you like to add or ask? Um, it's hard to add much to what um, Adam Peer has already said. I guess one thought is that, um, uh, in case it wasn't already clear, that we're, we're introducing a lot of uh, new concepts and, and some models in our book, but we 
we're, we're not trying to, you know, reinvent or replace psychoanalysis, you know, in some wholesale way. We're, we're trying to add uh, something that we feel is, is important, obviously, to the uh, existing, you know, excellent world of psychoanalytic thought that we hope will uh, enrich it um, in a number of ways. Um, and, it, and it enables us to rethink uh, aspects of what we do in psychoanalysis in, in fresh ways. And then picking up on, I think, what Adam was saying about the uh, issue of, of improvisation and, and I guess the aims of analysis or one of the aims of analysis ultimately for the analysis to uh, refine, rediscover, or find his or her own voice and style against the shared shared backdrop of the weave uh, uh, of music to become adept at playing well with others, um, you know, in the Winnicottian sense and the musical sense. Um, and then I thought of an idea in the punch that he um, puts forward as, as a as an aim or kind of optimal outcome of analysis, where he redefines sublimation as inspiration, uh, by which he means the ability to open, reopen, or open oneself up to the other, uh, and to be um, enigmatically, mysteriously affected. Uh, by the unconscious of the other in ways that one can then um, you know, be inspired by to do something. Uh, and I think that fits pretty well with um, our model that if one you know, finds one's own voice and becomes competent, adequate, good enough at, at making use of the weave of becoming a kind of musician, uh, it's, it's much more possible to enjoy you know, what LaFlanche calls uh, sublimation and being enriched by it. It's not just something that comes from within. It's not my, you know, more civilized transformation of my own drives or instincts. It's, it's my translation and engagement uh, and enchantment with others. As beautifully captured, I think, Christopher, in, in your little vignette about being at the opera. And I mean, when you think about what, what that singer is doing there, acting as a conduit, you know, for a piece of music that is hundreds of years old that through their own mastery and training and soulfulness is, you know, it's, uh, the word inspiration, right, to, to breathe life into. I mean, it sounds almost like, you know, uh, wind in, in the sails of, of an entire room of people. And to, to be in an experience like that, I mean, we can all probably uh remember moments like that from from our lives they, they they are the most precious moments and they're not about being uh an individual self they're about uh being uh transcending oneself uh um uh through music yeah i mean it was it was mass hysteria um and what's interesting about the opera at least meta opera is that there's there's no amplification no microphones. It's the pure voice and the, the orchestra. That's sort of one of their, you know, claims to fame. So goes to what uh, Peter was saying earlier about the compressed music and everything. Oh, um, every 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 sentence. I have more thoughts, but we have to stop. <laughs> We're at the end of our session for today. Oh my gosh. Um, all right. Uh, this is New Books and Psychoanalysis. We have been talking with Adam Bloom, Peter Goldberg, Michael Levin. Their new book, Here on Alive, The Spirit of Music in Psychoanalysis, 
Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for making the time to speak with me today. Thank you thank for you. having us, Christopher.